Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. My guest on today's episode of The Deep Dive is April Rennie. April is a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader and ranked one of the 50 leading female futurists in the world by Forbes. She helps individuals and organizations rethink and reshape their relationship with change, uncertainty, and a world in flux. She's a trusted advisor to well-known startups, companies, financial institutions, nonprofits, and think tanks worldwide. She's also the author of the upcoming book, Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in Constant Change. And I want to take this moment to welcome April to the deep dive. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you all today. I love the enthusiasm. There's good energy in the room. We're, we're recording this on a Monday. So it's very important that we channel a lot of good energy on a Monday. So, you know, I, I finished the book very recently. So I want to really get into the idea behind Flux. Like, why was this birthed into the world, which is part personal journey and part professional journey? Great question. Um, So I think what's interesting, and I'll just sort of frame it by saying, you know, this book is Flux and a world in Flux and a relationship to change. And it wasn't written in the last year. I think, you know, 2020, everyone's like, whoa, world in flux, like you described my life. But in fact, I've been looking at these shifts and making a set of observations about the world, individually, organizationally, societally, for, you know, I like to say it's been about two and a half decades now, um, the better part of my adult life. And I just kept looking. So I like to say that I bring three lenses on change or three lenses to flux. And the first is that of a futurist where I'm trying to figure out like, where are we today and where are we heading? And every person, every organization that I encounter struggles with change in some way, not always in the same way, but we are really not that great at it. We can adapt when we're forced to, like the last year has shown us, but on the whole, we really struggle with change. We resist it. We fear it. We think we can control it. And here I'm talking overwhelmingly about the kinds of change that we don't expect, that we don't opt into. Maybe we can circle back to the many different kinds of change. But anyway, that's been kind of on my mind for quite some time in the recent years. And I've also been lucky to have a really global career. So I've done the overwhelming majority of of my professional life has been spent working internationally. And in that context, I have seen all over the planet, on every continent except for Antarctica, that cultures, every single culture struggles with change in some way, but also has developed different ways of seeing it, different ways of talking about it, different ways of navigating it. And when I started to realize every culture struggles in their own little silo, if you will, but there's so much we can learn from one another about how different cultures see change and embrace it. And, you know, so that got me really interested. And then, you know, third, and I think that certainly the personal piece is that I myself have struggled with change. I've just, it's never been something I've been naturally attuned to. Now, I like new experiences. I like innovation. I like trying new things, but change has not been easy. And I like to say that my baptism into flux, my entry into flux, did happen about 25 years ago when I was in college and both of my parents were killed in a car accident. And I share this, I realize I've just sort of thrown a hand grenade into the conversation. I love talking about this though. This isn't a sad story. This is a story about what do you do when the world as you knew it and the future you thought you were going to have just sort of melts and there's, there's nothing you can do about it except figure out how am I going to move forward? And so I think now many years later, I never would have imagined that I would write a book about that back then, but I can see how it's played out today. I think of it though, the 
seed, the genesis of flux really comes from those three different layers of the, the personal, the global, the futurist, and all of those, they're different lenses, but they all kind of align in saying, we need help and we can do this a whole lot better. And what if we started having conversations about change in a different manner? And fundamentally, you know, the, the crux of flux, if you will, is how can we reshape our relationships to change to be fit for a world in constant flux, which is, I think, what we're looking more towards moving forward. The future is not more stable, more predictable. The future is more unstable, more unpredictable. So there's a kind of rewiring that I think, again, individually and collectively, we're going to need to gear up to undertake. And I'm excited to help people and organizations do that. I love that. Not the genesis of the personal story, because it is hard to um, fathom going through a loss like that. But you opened up the book fairly early, I believe, with that story. If I'm remembering correctly, I think it's like page one of the intro or something like, you know, the call from the sister letting you know what happened to to your parents. And I referenced that in this context because there's a moment of not just a singular moment of grief, but grief is a part of that context. I'm curious about to what degree, if at all, grief is factored into our notions of change, even when it's societal. And and given that we are coming out of a or in the midst of a pandemic and it's shifting in in some degree, but I'm often struck by how little we grieve in these moments, even as we're in moments of of change. So I'm curious how that factors into your your thought process at all. What a wonderful question segue theme. Thank you. And it is interesting. And and thank you also for just sort of accepting it, it is the intro story of the book. Now the irony is the book is the book is walking a very fine line that, that I absolutely love between you know business and leadership and how we show up in the world and guide organizations and so forth. But also I am firmly of the belief that professional development and what we do in the outside world has to come from within. So this is reshaping your relationship to change from the inside out. So you have to do the personal development piece and the professional development is an outgrowth of that. So that's where there is this kind of blended fluid nature of the story is deeply personal, but it's actually had enormous professional ramifications And I get worried, and I'm foreshadowing maybe a little bit, I get really worried when I see people so focused on what we're doing in the outside world, but we haven't necessarily done that internal self-awareness work around how we think and see and grapple with change. So back to grief. It is interesting, you know, it comes up from time to time as as I talk about flux a little bit more here and there. My parents' deaths, my parents' funeral was the first funeral I ever attended. I did not know death. I'm very grateful to be able to say that. I realize how lucky I am. My grandparents were living. Um, I was allergic to most animals, so we didn't have pets. So I didn't really have a pet guy. Like, I just didn't know grief. And then I got like a crash course, graduate level, (laughs) advanced, you know, curriculum in it. And one of the things that I will forever be really grateful for is that because I didn't have any sense of what grief was supposed to feel like or look like, I had no context that I showed up just really raw. I just showed up, if I can say, as a 20-year-old, which is when it happened, I just showed up as fully as I knew how as a human being because it just rocked my world. And one of the things I think is really interesting is that today, and I realize I'm generalizing a bit, but bear with me, um, society has a kind of script for how we're supposed to grieve or not grieve. And we're just supposed to work through it or, you know, that there's, there are things that are deemed appropriate and not appropriate when we grieve. And I think over the last year, and a lot of that, I should say, even before last year, we're not that we're supposed to bury it, but we're supposed to be someone on the outside and show up, you know, just as strong and show up at work the next day after experiencing some kind of loss. And that's just profoundly not human. And so... I think grief ends up playing a bigger role in this book than I would have expected for sure. 
And I also could not have predicted, because I was writing this before 2020, the events of 2020 and how they were, you know, 2020 was a great accelerant for my ideas and also the sense of urgency I felt about getting these ideas out. But the linkage that I see with change and grief and loss societally, and, you know, to some degree, I can see where this comes from, but we've gone, I believe, way out of proportion to what's normal, is that change, when change is seen as loss, automatically, there's a grief of that loss. So the challenge is not all change is loss. And even change that's really hard and unexpected and unwelcome and painful and, you know, change is how we grow. And the more difficult change is where we often find the greater growth. But you don't want to overcomplicate things. We need to grieve and allow ourselves to grieve in community more than I think we do on the whole. And there's, you know, there are new terms that are emerging um, over the past year to describe the kind of grief that we're going through. There are a few different terms that are sort of, they weren't in the lexicon before, and now they are. And you're like, that's awesome. What I'm really interested in helping people do, and again, including myself, I had to walk this path. I sort of had to walk through my own fire, if you will, way back when. But A, to allow ourselves to grieve what is no longer, whether that's a parent or a way of life. Grieve what is no longer, but don't assume that just because you're grieving that it's only loss. To see that when we can acknowledge allowing ourselves to grieve fully, I believe, is what allows us to move through the pain and hardship and into that space where growth can come. It's it's interesting, the, the flip side of, of grief, it's not exactly like the opposite side of the coin, but an, another connective piece that I often think about and it, it's come up in a in another conversation that I was having. This is more than a few episodes ago by now, but it was this year around cancel culture where we were talking about trauma and who gets to ask for forgiveness relative to others. And it was a very, not all over the place conversation. It was very actually tight conversation, but these were some concepts that came up. And the reason why these have surfaced as kind of twin pillars of at least this portion of our conversation. We aren't going to spend our entire time on this, but I did want to bring it up at the beginning, not just because it is at the beginning chronologically of the book, but I think it ties very much to our, to bigger societal questions. And when you hear things or you mentioned change being seen as lost, the fear of, of change is often rooted in what, or the hesitation or fear, whatever degree we want to use there, is often a function of what we perceive as losing vis-a-vis something else. And that world of, of flux that we're describing, it seems like as a, as a nation, we're going through a lot of that. And it seems very much rooted in, in trauma and in grief to some degree what we want to acknowledge versus what we don't and so on and so forth. So these these ideas as it relates to flux and as it relates to now a more macro viewpoint, how do those reconcile as part of the journey? And, and we're going to get deeper into the mindset and the, the superpowers and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm getting there, believe me. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. This is wonderful. Absolutely. Just so rich and so... So thank you. I'm, I'm happy to spend as long as you want. So grief and trauma, I mean, it's interesting. I always, I do give the caveat straight up that, you know, I'm not a mental health specialist. I am not um, a psychologist. I am trying to bring a layperson's view to a lot of these issues. But grief and trauma are, yeah, they're not, not flip sides of the same coin, but they're certainly siblings. They're certainly allies, you know, for better or for worse. And one of the things that you're spot on with regards to the last year, but also, and again, I think I'm foreshadowing a little bit because it relates to a couple of the superpowers around what we see and don't see, what we've been trained and socialized to see and not see. And in the context of trauma, I mean, I'm, I am very clear. I think, I think we are in the midst of an epidemic of anxiety and of trauma societally, and neither is doing anybody any good. And both are putting us on a kind of a train wreck, 
with our own well-being. And one of the things that's been really interesting for me, um, just to kind of try to piece some of this together, is that um, I think for a long time I thought that trauma was like something like bad happened. Like there was an event, boom, trauma, traumatic experience. And I think a lot of people put my parents' accident in that category. Like that was you were traumatized by that accident. It's like, yeah, I was. But I actually did the work, like, again, was raw with the grief, was just, like, fully in it. And, like, for quite some time after their death, there was nothing that mattered more in my life than just feeling, like, all the feelings. Just work through it. That the the only way out is through, right? What I didn't realize, or, and, and I mean, again, this plays out so many ways, societally, uh, culturally, historically, oh, my God. But that, you know, equally traumatic is the kind of death by a thousand cuts. The trauma that may not show up, it doesn't show up in a headline. It doesn't show up on the surface. But it's these little cuts that we make to one another, to ourselves, based on what we've been taught. I mean, that that actually traumatize an individual and particularly children. I'm going a little bit off script here. But, you know, kids are sponges. And what we tell kids growing up, we think it doesn't make a difference or they will forget it. No, it's like imprinted on your DNA. And that relates to things like if you're worthy, if you're lovable, if you can be someone, someday, you know, what you can do, like, right? And if we send messages to children day by day that, you know, you're just not quite there, you're just not quite, you know, that's a kind of trauma that shows up years later and manifests itself in all kinds of different ways. And I think that we are definitely having, there's a massive reckoning. I, it's not singular. I mean, multiple reckonings that are happening right now with the ways in which we have traumatized one another. We have, I think, oftentimes traumatized ourselves. Um, you know, we can get into this with mindset. But, um, that, yeah, the grieving. So if there's been trauma, you have to be able to grieve what's been lost or changed as part of that. But that doesn't mean that the trauma has to always be part of what you carry forward. There is that ability. Can we move through, move through this to a better place? I'm not saying you move through it and forget about it. I'm saying you harness all of the difficulty and all of the baggage, but that it doesn't all have to be for naught. It's not all a weight. It actually can be um, a source of strength moving forward. And as you were talking, I was underlining my question about a script because scripts also come up as as a major part of the book that we have these mindsets and ways of thinking that influence how we're kind of looking at the world and thinking about change and and our place in it. So I'm that's going to be my next question. But before we get there, I wanted to you know dig more into the future basis of flux because it is not solely an idea rooted in the future, but the future is woven quite naturally into the idea of the book. And as I was reading it, it made me, you know, again, I'll pose the question, you know, our future is in flux. It's a unknown, but maybe it's, it's the kind of current place in which we are we're in that's influencing the way I'm thinking about this, but it feels like our past is often in flux as well. That even the concrete narratives that we've been maybe taught that are the gospel, for lack of a better word, aren't really the gospel. And there's an incredible challenges and fights as to not only who owns the future, but who owns the past. What stories are we telling? You know, how do you see, A, do you see that? Um, then B, to what degree you do, if any, how does flux play into not just our future, but that past that I described? Man, Bill, I'm just like, I'm like, let me digest this. I just, this is fabulous. And there are 10 different ways I think I could jump into the answer. So let me try a couple. <laughs> we'll see where we get. <laughs> so yeah, so these scripts, and I, I call it a script. I've heard other people call it, you know, our internal OS, <laughs> our operating systems, our programs, basically the stories the narratives, the norms by which we live our lives. And I think in many cases, 
the stories that describe the world we expect to live in. And every single person on the planet has a script. I have one, you have one, everyone out there has one. No two are the same because we're all different and no one script is better than another. So just to be really clear, it's just a kind of like, we all have them. Have you thought about yours kind of thing? And by and large, in what I can think of as kind of modern human history. So I think especially from the industrial revolution onwards, and I don't mean to discount the history that came before that, but I think so much of what has us twisted up like a pretzel today, when it comes to things like anxiety, like just that kind of stuff, does come from this shift where we began to standardize, industrialize, and scale a bunch of models. That was the point at which you we, we developed this idea of like the corporate ladder. We're going to climb a ladder and success, professional success is apparently at the top of this ladder. And you are going to pursue your career as a linear, singular path. You're going to go to school, get good grades, study hard, get a good job, do that job for a long time, climb the ladder and retire. Very linear. Linear script. But that is a script, right? that I think has held for a lot of people for a long time. We'll come back to this in a minute because that script no longer works. It's not, no, it doesn't work for a whole lot of different reasons. But also if you make plans, if you put in the work that somehow, I don't want to say you'll get what you want, but things will go to plan. You can kind of control and predict a whole bunch of outcomes in your life. Yeah, look at the last year. <laughs> not so true. Again, that's a part of a script. So your script is shaped by your family or whoever raised you. It's, it's shaped by your teachers, by your culture, by where and when you were born. I mean, I always say like, if you come from an immigrant family or if you come from an adopted family or if you come from a family that's been in your hometown for generations, like different scripts, all equally valid, but they all have a set of norms by which like, here's what, here's what the world you can expect to live in will look like when you grow up. And a lot of this does happen as we're children. And so this is where, when we get to the future, it's like, this is what the future is going to look like. And what we're finding today, and I think we all can look around and say, gosh, the world I was told I would live in doesn't look that much like the world I'm living in right now. What happened? And I think, you know, that's where, and in, in the book, we get into like, what is your script today? And you're sort of the older script, which I just shared a couple of examples, again, generalizations, but old script to a new script. And what I'm interested in doing is how do we all begin to write our own new scripts that are fit for a world in flux? Because what we have right now are these really ill-fitting scripts that we kind of look at and go, this isn't working. This really isn't working. And yet they have a really long tail, right? We, we know they're not working, yet we're still filtering our decisions through them. And we're really afraid of letting go of those scripts because we don't have that next thing to grab. We don't have that sense of certainty and stability. And that's really hard to do. You know, it's that classic case of we'll stick with something that is familiar, even if it's really, if I can say really shitty, it's a really bad solution. We'll stick with it because it's familiar. We need to actually have the audacity and the courage to reach to that next script that is fit for world in flux. But that's not going to be easy and that's not going to happen, over, happen overnight. Your point, though, about the history, I think, and that flux isn't just about the future, it's also about the past, is so spot on and it is in so many different ways. I think when it comes to history that's been un, not unwritten, the history that's not taught in a lot of schools that is absolutely fundamentally formative in the United States history and other countries, like in world history, that relates to a couple of the superpowers, like what we've, what we're trained to see is visible and invisible. So maybe I'll leave that for a little bit, but it does when a world is in flux and in this sense of limbo, there is an opening for what we couldn't see before, what we were trained not to see before to emerge. But there's, and there's also this sense of what I love is when you realize that your current script is not actually that fit, <laughs> it also gives you an opportunity to go back in your own history and say, how did I end up with this script? When and where did it start to go off track? Like, did I even think about it? And that's one of the things I really love. One of the 
one of my goals with Flux is not to be, you know, the Holy Grail. Have the, It doesn't have all the answers or solutions or whatever. But there's this opening to self-awareness about how did your script end up being your script? That the vast majority of us, myself included for most of my life, like, I didn't think about it. Until you start looking around enough and enough at yourself, at your friends, at your family, at society, and going, things are not working. Things are disconnected. What we're told, what we're taught, and what's reality are just, wait a minute. And so that part of the history I like as well, because it prompts us, it nudges us to get to know ourselves a little bit better, as well as the context and environment within which our own mindset and worldview and opinions got shaped. And I think that's, you know, there's a lot to get into as we get closer to the mindset and then to the superpowers. And I was also struck by this notion of knowing. And the future is something that commands a certain level of knowing, right? Because as as we question, which is where the flux comes in, you know, there's something out there in our future. Tomorrow, I don't know, right? And it's a, it's, a un, it's an unforeseen thing, and we're trying to figure that thing out, right? So we're really trying to get to the core of knowing with the notion that the more that I know, the more likely I am to be able to have a better mindset and, and do all these things. And is there room for the not knowing to become okay? So the answer is yes, but let's come back. I jumped too quickly to the punchline because it's easier said than done. And it's funny because I find myself often having to kind of give a bit of a disclaimer or a caveat that like when I say not knowing or in particular, there's a superpower called let go of the future, right? People go, oh my God, like let go of the future. Are you crazy? Like that sounds like I'm giving up or I'm failing. Like that sounds like the epitome of doom. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. no, no, no. That is not what I intend here. In the context of that superpower, what I like to say is we need to be able to let go of the future in order for a better future to emerge. And peeling back that, the layer of that onion a little bit, we need to let go of this belief that there is one future that I am going to predict and work really hard to make happen because you can't do that. Like no one can control the future, you know, never mind tomorrow, like this afternoon. You don't know what's going to happen. And what I'm looking at is it's more of this sense of we need to get out of our own way. And in the context of the future, rather than saying, I need this one, I am planning and preparing for this one future that is going to go my way, the way I want it, you know, these goals, X, Y, Z. We need to acknowledge that you should absolutely invest your time and your effort and your skills into a future you want to see but you should absolutely let go of this belief that any one future, that one future you want to see is going to be the one that evolves. And so back to the not knowing, it's that same sense. We need to let, I'm not saying that you shouldn't strive for knowledge, strive for expertise, strive for wisdom and have perspective, but we need to let go of this belief that you can somehow know what's going to happen or control the outcome. Because the fact is, I can't, no one can't. And actually, the more we think we can, the more we drive ourselves to believe we can, the crazier we make ourselves, but also the poor decisions we tend to make over time. And so there's this interesting, I mean, it's a great paradox. And there's paradox throughout the book, which I love, <laughs> and this ability to hold these like things that don't seem to make sense together. But actually, when you can let go, when you can embrace, to your point, provide the space not knowing, accept and embrace not knowing. And actually, even I'll go as far as to say, see not knowing as a strength, not a weakness. You find it's incredibly freeing. You find you're actually able to create space and breathe oxygen into new ideas. You find that, gosh, I don't have to be able to predict and control everything. Thank you. That actually feels a little bit more aligned with reality and gives me space, breath, time to breathe into or acknowledge or even start to see those other things that really matter. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this gives us like the perfect bridge to, 
you know, dig deeper into both the flux mindset and the, the superpowers, because they they work, as you describe in the book, sort of a wheel and spoke, right? Um, they support one another, they revolve around one another. So why don't we start with the flux mindset? You know, what is it? How does it compare from a values perspective to a maybe the more, not so much old mindset, but our current narratives and, and stories that we're running? And then we'll get into the superpowers. Sure. So the flux mindset, I, the way I like to describe it, I think most simply, is that it is that <laughs> it is the ability to consistently see all change as an opportunity, not a threat. And I don't mean just accept change. I mean, harnessing its silver linings, taking advantage of it, and seeing all change as a path forward for growth. And so compared to our, you know, old mindset, current mindset, the opposite is what I think a lot of us are stuck in today, which is change is scary. Change is definitely not all opportunity. <laughs> and I don't mean to say, I'm not saying that all change is easy. I'm not saying that all change is welcome. I'm not saying that all change doesn't like knock you over sideways on a Tuesday afternoon. I'm just saying we've got to develop the muscle, strengthen, think of the flex mindset as a muscle and strengthen this muscle that can see every change, even the ones you don't like, even the ones that are, you know, maybe not going to turn out great. There's still opportunities for growth. So that's kind of where we are there. And, you know, mindset itself, I think, is just a fascinating concept when you dig into it and how it's a relatively recent phenomenon. And I will say, too, I can add. Um, people often ask me, how does it relate to a growth mindset? You know, flux mindset, growth mindset, same thing. And I always like to say, totally um, believe in the value of a growth mindset, which says, you know, particularly for kids, that our mindsets are not fixed. They can grow and evolve and adapt and improve and become stronger over time. What a growth mindset doesn't really do, though, is look at our state of mind when things change. So the flux mindset is sort of an additive to that idea, really looking at what happens when things just, and again, overwhelmingly, I'm looking at those changes that we don't expect, that we don't opt into, that we perhaps don't want. Because in fairness, change that we like, change that we opt into, change that we're like, yeah, awesome, you know, I want to do that, that stuff's easy. That's not the stuff that people struggle with. I think there are many more kinds of change that we have not fully wrestled with. And given that the future is more change, not less, we need to all um, sort of get a leg on improving our relationship to change. So let me pause there. I can talk about the superpowers now or? Yeah, well, I actually had an addendum, which is change as, as something that is, you know, again, we wrestle with this idea of change. And you know, even in the example, you know, changes that, that we want to do are easier. And the ones that we perceive as being bad for us are, you know, less into, right? Or perception of, of being bad or that might not have been the exact language, but I hope everyone gets where I'm going. Yeah. And, and the perception, where is that perception coming from? And I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm not judging it either way, but it's like, where is it coming from? And that's your script. And that's a, the piece I want to jump onto for a second, because it seems that change, when we talk about it in the abstract of the individual, it becomes easier to parse this language. When change now becomes bigger in the construct of society, we start to get maybe a different narrative. And so I'm curious about why our narrative, and by our, I'll say, American or Western world narrative tend to be very individually based, which makes the argument for for change very my language, not your language, um, very minutia based. You know, I, I think about in a in a city perspective, right? I live in New York City. You know, everything is very um, nimby, right? Not in my backyard, right? Because we're all concerned about our individual neighborhoods or individual homes. And, you know, Douglas Rushkoff, I remember in one of his books, he made a, 
He gave an example, and I'm paraphrasing Doug right now, so I apologize, Doug, if I'm butchering your story, but I don't think I am, where he was living in Brooklyn, and he created like a, either a newsletter or something to talk about like burglaries that were happening in the area, and people complained about it because they were like, oh, you're giving the neighborhood a bad name, and what's going to happen to our property values? And he was thinking, oh, I thought I was helping everybody understand that people are breaking into your car or whatever it was, right? Or stealing your bicycles or whatever the thing was at that time. So these are two imperfect examples to kind of get at our story, our narrative as a as a country, if you're in the US, and I think in the Western world, it's very individually based one. And so a lot of our struggle with change, my editorial, not the editorial of the book, is a lot of that struggle comes from people not wanting to sacrifice for anyone other than themselves. And so I'm curious about that script, because when I when I think about these scripts that were told, they're often based on individual success, right? If I get the grades, I'll get into the school. And, and so if you don't get into the school, then it's like, well, I'm owed this, right? A lot of it is like what I'm owed, right? And, and one last thing I'll, I'll mention is the, the point where I knew Trump had a chance at this was way before he was even out of the field, and I've referenced this story before, I think, on different episodes of the show, where there was a New York Times article that the group that was most, that had the highest rate of suicide were white males over 40. And it, this was not a political story, it was just a health story in the New York Times. This had to be like 2015, probably. And so the Republican field was full. And I was like, this dude has a chance. Because if this group is killing themselves, then they must think something's wrong right? Because this is the group that has everything. So their perception of change was, or, or flux, their future was so dim that they're killing themselves at numbers unseen among any other demographic, which then opens the door to a whole bunch of other stuff. So my point to all that is just to set the stage to, to question individual narrative script versus group script. How does that fit into the, the mindset? Sorry for the long editorial. <laughs> No, this is great. And you've nailed so many juicy, interesting, like need to address these issues in your editorial. It's great. And I, I'm I'm having this deja vu to when I was writing a book with my editor and this question. And also, so two different but parallel questions that I kept getting, which was, um, you know, hey, you need to write more about organizations in flux. And hey, you need to write more about society in flux. And I love that. I was like, yes, absolutely. And there was a point at which my editor was like, that's the next book. Can't get it all in this one. You know, and I had this sort of, he's like, word counts. You've already blown through your word count. You can't do more. You know, so so I, I offered that up as a little bit of like, yeah, you've, you've hit upon a kind of mother load. And I don't go as much into detail as, as I might have if I had written, you know, a thousand page tome. But this book is focused more on the individual, but at the same time, what is an organization? It's a group of individuals. What is a society? It's a group of individuals. It's just different dynamics that play out at different scales. So a couple things I just wanted to bring up. I do. So this is where that the global perspective on change and the cultural stuff, it was just a delight to dig into how different cultures, and here I'll bring up, East, broadly speaking, Eastern versus Western cultures and how we see change. And not, not just change how we see our relationship to society. And if there's change on me, does that impact the community? Change to the community, what does that mean for me? How do we prioritize? How do we look at, you know, what do we prioritize? And it's the whole me versus we kind of thing. And, you know, you really, you did hit the nail on the head in terms of East versus West writ large. There is a much, and, and I, I do give the caveat that this may sound a bit stereotypical. That's not what I intend, but I'm also like, talk to somebody from these places. Like it's, <laughs> it's not me. I, it's, this has been validated many, many times over that when you are raised in a culture that has a very strong emphasis on community, there is also a kind of assumption that when change hits, you will weather it together. It, somebody has your back. Somebody's looking out for you. Somebody, you know, and that you're not just in this ocean kind of bobbing on your own life with your own life jacket, hoping to God that somebody will find you. And I think that in the West, and again, certain countries more than others, certain demographics more than others, there's always an exception to the rule. 
but on the whole, it's more like change hits, like good luck, try to adapt, you know, off you go. And for some people that works okay for some people. And again, and I know there's a, there's another theme issue that kind of pervades the book that um, I've really had to grapple with. And I can continue to grapple with, we all do. And that is just the role of privilege in all of this. So being part of a community is actually a certain kind of privilege. Having an individual, if you will, um, constitution that when change hits that you're like, I'm going to make the most of this. You know, that, that's a kind of privilege as well. But privilege, there's, there's financial privilege. There's historical privilege. There's emotional pr- Coming from a loving family, just a family that loves you for who you are, that's huge. It feels odd even to call that privilege. I would like to think of that as just a, a fundamental human right, but the fact is not everyone gets it. And so I bring this up also because the collective versus individual, East versus West, absolutely, the more we can focus on the we rather than the me, the better equipped overall we are to navigate change in the big picture. At the same time, I find that those individuals who can navigate change well, it's actually what I find privilege, and again, writ large, privilege can help us on the one hand, give us more options. Privilege can also blind us. Going back to what we were talking about, loss and fear and all of that, and perception, I'll be really clear. (laughs) The more privilege you perceive yourself as having, the more you will actually believe you have to, on the line and the more you will resist fear, sorry, resist um, change and fight it and fear it and you name it. And this plays out in a couple different ways. And I'm just, I'm reminded for whatever reason about one example um, in the book that, you know, we dig into capitalism and colonialism and consumerism and all sorts of isms on in the very big picture for like how we ended up in the, in the mess that we are today. But just looking at countries, places, the role of colonialist history and just how much havoc it wreaked on how many places around the world. And at the same time, and I'm quoting, I'm not quoting him, but the the quote in the book is by um, an Indian philosopher and sociologist, Amitav Ghosh. And his whole thing is like, listen, I have never believed I could predict or control the future. I've never seen change is something that I would try to control. I've never seen that like the status quo is something we have to fear and hold on to and all that because that's not the reality of the world I grew up in. And so to your point, primarily white men with privilege are the ones who are deemed to see, to think they have the most to lose. So they fight back, so to speak. They're also the ones, and again, apologies for generalizing, but I find it again and again, that's also where privilege is most blinding and actually doesn't help you at all. <laughs> it just keeps you more stuck in a world that's not working. I don't know if that, no. kind of, there's many layers there, but. There, um, there are many layers, you know, and as, as we have these conversations, you know, we're trying to navigate it as best we can, right? And these, you know, the stories are going to be imperfect. The analogies are going to be imperfect because we're imperfect beings, right? <laughs> trying to make sense of, issues and topics that are very complex, right? So I, you know, I tell listeners all the time, like, look, nobody said everybody, right? But that doesn't, your exception doesn't negate the reality of, of the situations that we're trying to navigate. You know, this isn't a comedy routine where we're like, well, all guys do this and all girls do this, right? It's like, no, it's not, it's not that simple, right? So we got to leave ourselves space to negotiate these issues, talk about them and, and land in better places. Right. So that's all, that's all we're really trying to do. Surfacing these things that we may or may not have thought about. And I'm not, not judging, just saying like, consider like marinate in this for a little bit, see how it feels kind of like trying on clothes, like which one fits and doesn't. And sometimes it's just that matter of, and I think particularly after this last year where so many of us, myself included, like, like so many people in general, like we've had more tunnel vision. We've been more like, whoa, need to kind of focus on what's right in front of me and, you know, stay safe and healthy and all that. And now there is this kind of like, huh, I'm hoping that my brain can sort of be 
massaged in some new ways. I'm and the analogy I like to imagine is like imagine finding a kind of a trap door in your head where you have a little extra space or you've you've had a lot of this this is a little aside but it, it relates some to, to what we're talking about so much of what I'm trying to uncover and surface and talk about it's not like brand new technology we never had before it's not something that dropped from the sky like so much of what we're dealing with right now like this is wisdom or these are things we have long held I think in our minds and bodies and brains and they've been buried for a long time and they've been buried by a lot of the forces we've been talking about just now but to just kind of unearth those things and make them visible and make them topics of not just conversation but hopefully positive change like that that feels worthwhile and it feels like people are maybe more ready now for it now i hope than they were a year ago absolutely i think um you know, and, and this gets us into the superhero superpowers a bit, um, because when I when I was reading through these, what struck me is exactly what you just said, that there were parts of each one that I feel is knowledge that we have. And it's been framed in, in different ways, which makes them even more valuable to me. Right. Because it's about connecting those dots and so when you you open up and I'm going to list them and then talk a little bit about maybe the first few, just as I'm kind of looking at where we are with time, you know, you have run slower and I'm paraphrasing. All right, folks. Um, so run slower, see what's invisible, get lost, start with trust, know you're, know you're enough, which re- reminded me of one of my guests, I'll mention that, um, create your portfolio career, be more human and let go of the future and let go of the future. We talked about a little bit as it kind of weaved in, but when I read the the run slower part, it reminded me of one running is a, is a great place of, of metaphor and, and analogy as a, as a former runner. And I think about John Wooden has a, a one of his many quotes is um, be quick, but don't hurry. And when you mentioned run, when you talk about run slower, it made me think about that. And then, you know, know you're, know you're enough. There's a, a guess I had um, Dr. Ann Stenrose a few years ago, and two years ago, a few, the top of this year, um, which kind of shows how I think about time. And she has this idea, um, the um, good enough economy, you know, that we should move in our economic slash social world, knowing and understanding what's good enough relative to these ideas of consumption. So, you know, I was really excited reading through these because it connected to, again, so many wells of deep knowledge that exist and I think we could all connect with and work on. So I want to give you an opportunity to kind of go through like why you landed specifically on these superpowers, right? It it could have been 10, it could have been five, you landed on eight. Um, They're all very unique and specific. And so kind of take us through a a little bit of that. And oh my goodness, this is fabulous because um, even when I'm like, oh, let's let's just talk about No, You're Enough because what you just said about your other guest, spot on. And I'm just, I may or may not get to get back to this one. So let me tease that one up because we have been so hardwired as society for like more, more is better, more, 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 you know, we're on a hamster wheel. We need more and, and we'll never be enough. And the way I like to frame it, is that so long as you are seeking more, you will never find enough. Yet, when you come from the perspective of enough, you will almost immediately begin to find abundance. And that's like, if we think about that in terms of sustainable consumption, if we think in terms in that, think of that in terms of I am and you are enough. If we think about that in terms of our value to society, you know, it's kind of a game changer. And yet this whole like more is better race to more and more. As far as I can tell, it's mostly making us miserable, keeping us on a hamster wheel and burning up the planet. So I'm like, okay. And yet enough, enough is not too much and not too little. It, it's this sense of sufficiency and satisfaction. And yes, there's a big difference between too much and not enough. But um, anyway, I offer that up there because it's just this corner of like, that's not some kind of newfangled wisdom like that's how we lived as humans for most of history and then we went wildly off course in the past you know couple centuries in particular but 
back to the superpowers and how they evolved. And I have to be honest, Bill, I'm not sure. So I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what's the ninth superpower. I am very grateful to tell you that I haven't landed on it yet. So I think, you know, to be honest, it was nothing but sheer work. It was weeks and candidly months of post-its all over the wall. And this relates more broadly, I think, to how you structure a book and what goes into it. And, you know, there were so many ideas. It took me years to really come up, not many, many, it was the better part of two years to actually conceptualize the book, get it approved, all that kind of stuff. And eight is where we landed. Now, I will say that in a very anecdotal way, I love that it's the number eight. Did you know that eight is the luckiest of all lucky numbers in China? That's kind of fun. It's like an infinity sign. And uh, yeah, so I don't have a Chinese market yet. But anyway, it ended up being eight because that's where we landed. Could have been seven, could have been 10. I gather that some numbers do better for marketing than others, but eight is where we landed. And honestly, I didn't set out with a goal of identifying these superpowers. When I started, I mean, my book went through so many different iterations. I was really, I was definitely always this whole like future in flux and like how poorly equipped we are to deal with it. But I was looking at from looking at it from the perspective of, for example, identity. Identity writ large has never been more fluid. It's really, um, you know, it's largely borderless in terms of where we are collectively, but also professional identity. We are so wrapped up in what we do that if you lose a job, it's like a professional identity crisis for a lot of people. And I just kept thinking, this just isn't this isn't working. So. It was just this process of distillation and peeling back the layers of the onion and combining and recombining. And, you know, I knew I knew from the get go that there was something about trust. And that is just my lived experience around how much we have designed our systems and organizations with. And again, not saying that no one I'm not saying that there aren't untrustworthy people. I'm saying we have designed systems and institutions with the basic premise, the basic default assumption that you cannot trust the average individual. That means you, that means me. I mean, and that's insane because as far as I can tell, most people are good. And yes, you want to have rules for when people aren't, but you want, when you design from a premise that the average individual is trustworthy, you design a very different system than what we have today. And it looks a little bit better. So anyway, there were some things that I knew were there that the part about more versus enough, the part about trust, run slower was one. And we, we, I had to wrangle lots of different titles for these things too. I mean, they all went through iterations and an evolution. You know, run slower. I love the quote that you mentioned too. I'll, another one that comes to mind in a similar spirit, it's a, it's a saying of the Navy SEALs, which is slow is smooth, smooth is fast. You're like, hmm, Okay. Interesting. Now I'm looking at run slower from the perspective of, um, as the the superpower is sort of described, that in a fast paced world and an ever faster pace of change, we need, the only way we're going to thrive is to learn how to slow our own pace. And what I mean by that, so we've got this, again, collision of forces. The pace of change has never been faster than it is today. And yet it is likely to never again be this slow. Let that sink in for a minute. It's both kind of exciting and a little bit terrifying, right? And yet, think about what society writ large, again, the scripts, think about what society tells us to do when things, when the pace increases. We need to run faster. You just need to keep up. You just need to keep up. You just need to keep up. Now, I'm all for trying to learn new skills and do new things and move ahead and, and so forth. But I want you to, to just play out these two tracks, if you will, into the future. Pace of change is ever faster, ever faster, ever faster. So if I've read what society is telling me to do, it's I need to run faster and faster and faster and faster and faster my whole life, and then I die. And I'm like, at best, that looks like burnout. But at worst, collectively, we are running, trying to run so fast that we're running past life itself. We're not slowing down enough to focus on what really matters. We're not slowing down enough to know what decisions to take. I mean, it's really... It's anxiety, it's burnout, it's quick decisions, but not wise decisions. It's all that stuff together. And yet, again, I'm like, it's not some kind of newfangled wisdom. We've known this for a long time, but 
we've allowed ourselves to go, I think, really quite far off track. And so part of what a world in flux and when change hits, it gives us this opportunity to recalibrate. It, it shakes us up and allows us to say, whoa, what's not working here? And one of the things I think really is not working here is this quest to run ever faster after ever more. And so hence back to, you know, just one example of, of how that plays out. Yeah, and, and they definitely do link and, and tie and, and work together. I'm, I come across this very old meaning. It was written like in the 1800s, 1830, 1845. So it does track very well with this industrial age moment. And it was a group of craftsmen. And I use gender of craftsmen on purpose because they were men. And they were advocating for like a, a union against like some textile workers or, or something. And I was looking to find it, to put it in the show notes. And I, it'll, I'll come across it because I used it in an essay not too long ago, but I don't quite remember all the details of the name of the of the guild that was coming together. But in it, what they were really describing quite eloquently, you know, people wrote differently back then, um, was this desire to control their own time. And they they viewed the industrialist or the boss as someone who was encroaching upon their ability to have leisure, you know, or or at least have pursuits left to themselves. And it it makes me think I follow a, a group on on Twitter called Nap Ministry, which is pretty cool because they are all about um, rest as a as a radical act and reclaiming our rest away from this idea that you've described, which is constantly moving in order to produce. And I'm a big believer in the opt out. I opt out of many more things that I opt into, I opt out of, and I make no excuses for it. I'm like, nah, I was telling my team today, that's my, that's my favorite word. N-A-H, nah, <laughs> good. I love this, not quote, sort of phrase. The kind of growth that comes only with rest. So now we get tied up in things like productivity and efficiency and all that. And where, well, okay, you're being more productive, more productive, how defined. We assume that if we run faster, that somehow having, and again, run faster and, and know you're enough, the faster and more are, are very closely linked. But, you know, the fact that we have more meetings somehow makes us more productive and therefore more valuable to society. And I'm sort of like, says who last I checked, you know, one one quality meeting can do you way better than 10, you know, empty meetings, pointless meetings, standing calls, whatever. Um, but there is this sense, and I, I just, I really, really worry. And I think that it's, it is definitely related to our to technology. It's definitely related to a kind of insta everything, always on culture. And this belief that our identity and our value is somehow tied up with how fast we can run. And yet it's making us miserable. It's not helping us be our best. So yeah, to just kind of flesh that out. And I do want to go back to one thing that you mentioned earlier, just as framing for the superpowers as a whole. One thing that does make me super happy about them is that the best way to describe it is they're a menu, not a syllabus. Meaning that this is like a la carte. You can, and the way the book has been structured, each chapter is a superpower. So you can eat, you can read the chapters in whatever order you want, honestly. Each one is helpful on its own and also enhances the others. So you do not need to go one, two, three, four, five, six. You do not need to master all eight. Um, not that anyone can master them. They're sort of life, they're lifelong journeys anyway, but that you can strengthen all eight. But when you learn to run slower, you will find it's easier to start seeing what's invisible. When you start to see what's invisible, you will start to get better at starting with trust. When you start with trust, you will see that it's a little bit easier to be all the more human, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a nice kind of weaving together of them, but each one is helpful and valid and sort of able to be strengthened on its own. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really important meditation and and I really enjoyed it. I'm keeping an eye on the time because I want to get to our final two segments of the show because as I always say, we can run the risk of doing this 
for the next three hours and I have the world's longest episode in just in the in the matter of discussing this one book. So I want to jump to Off the Dome, which are just some some quick questions, some provocations, literally first thing off the head, and then we'll get to the final segment, which is the drop. So if you're ready, I'm ready. All right. So first question is, if you can take credit for any invention in history, what would it be? And you mean an invention that exists that I didn't create? Yeah, yeah, you had okay. yeah. Okay. any invention. What would it be? I'm overthinking. I'm not supposed to overthink this. Oh, this, I don't know why this is coming to mind, but um, oh gosh, wait, the ability to purify water. That's a good one. Or to desalinate water. That's a good one. To realize that that's just without water, there is no life. And yeah, I spent some years working in the water and sanitation world, global development, and realizing that if at the end of the day we can live without food like the ability to bring access to clean water yeah that that i feel pretty good about that's that. a good one okay on the completely opposite side of that spectrum what is your most used emoji oh i'm a late bloomer when it comes to emojis i will admit i want to give two answers so the one that i use i mean the classic smiley face. But the one that I really like is the star that's like in a circle. Like you're like a, like a sh- you're not a shooting star. It's, yeah, it's a star with a circle that I absolutely love. What's the star with the circle? What does that mean? Like generally, how is it used contextually? Well, I, lo- I use it a lot because it can be, that was like like dazzling or kind of, I think of it like cosmic. Okay. Like, like otherworldly and it's used, it's inspiring it's like you added sparkle to my life, but it's not a face. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of like you took me to some other world. I love that emoji. Oh. And the other one that I have to mention, because I just learned that it exists, and I suppose a lot of people listening to this will already know this, and I'm late to the party. But recently I've been using a peacock a lot because I didn't know there was a peacock emoji. Okay. <laughs> and that one just because it's there. <laughs> so. That's amazing. That is very funny. Um Random, but very funny. And and the last one, there are only three off the domes right now. If you can use any song as your theme, what would that be? Oh, I think I kind of walked into this one. So um, it's actually, I'm going to answer it this way because I was going to share it with you. It's not a song. I recently completed a playlist, 56 songs, three hours and 30 minutes, a flux playlist. They're all songs about change. So my answer is any one of those songs. And it's everything from David Bowie to Brazilian Mercedes, what's her name, Mercedes Sosa. It's African music, it's French cafe music, but it's all about change. So, um, you know, in that regard, I would say it's like John John Mayer waiting for the world to change. Okay. That song a few years ago. Not that I'm a fan of that kind of music, but like it's just a really, when you play it and you're talking about flux, it just, fits together. And um, I'm happy to send you the playlist link as well. It's publicly available and people have been having a blast. I I was going to ask you that that's got to go into show notes. So we're going to have to have that playlist for sure to include in in the rest of the notes for the show. That's (laughs) that's very good. I like it. Yeah, it was so what was really fun. Just a quick um, footnote. I had I did some research, um, and my niece is helping with some of this stuff, so she did some research. And then we crowdsourced it. We just opened it up to a bunch of people, and oh my god, we got such great responses. And my community is quite global, so people were just piling on with I had no idea, and all genres, all eras. I mean, and what's funny is people are like, it's not all the kind of music I would listen to, but it's all really good music. Yeah, like so. I hope you enjoy. Oh no, absolutely. It sounds it sounds really, really cool. That's awesome. So I got an extra kind of drop before the drop. So now we're gonna get to the drop. <laughs> and and this is our chance to Yeah, exactly. That was the bonus drop. <laughs> to, to share something with the with the listeners that, that you think they should be aware of. And I can go first or you can go first. It's your dealer's choice, so to speak. Mm, why don't you go first? All right, I will go first with my drop. And um my drop is not one particular piece of music, but it's an artist that I really love. And I'm I'm primarily a Spotify user, but I did get Apple Music on a like free plan for like six months solely because I could li- I wanted to listen to one artist and that artist is Anita Baker, who I love. 
and adore. And when I was growing up in the 80s, even though Whitney Houston was kind of the big pop star in terms of like women vocalist, I always loved and preferred Anita Baker, even though there was really no reason for like a 13-year-old to really like Anita Baker's music. It was a little bit older and less poppy than than Whitney Houston, but I really loved her and that adoration continues to this day. And so I have Apple Music just to listen to one artist, which is Anita Baker. Um, so her entire discography is great, but I would put her 89 through like 94 as a string of four albums against anybody. How they have like Stevie's golden period in the 70s. I would stack her against anybody in that period. So I definitely say Anita Baker as an amazing, amazing artist. And that's my drop. Awesome. And you know what? I am now going to go to that time period and that, you know, and I'm going to make sure. Oh, well, first I'm going to go to the spot to the playlist and see there may already be a song by Anita Baker on the playlist. I don't know all of the songs by heart. And if not, I'm going to make sure to add one courtesy of the drop. Absolutely. I was thinking about this before and, and I was going in a very different direction, but keeping it on the theme about flux and kind of where we've been, but what doesn't show up in the book per se, there is a children's book. So, you know, my book is mostly for adults. I will, you know, young adults too, but I've had a lot of parents say like, how do we teach our kids? Like, like we all need help. And there is the most delightful children's book called Mr. Flux that it's a super simple read. It's the sweetest thing. It's about a guy who, you know, used to do everything the same way every day and then change it. And what did he do? And I love this book. It is absolutely, you know, children of all ages, I would say. And I know that for anyone listening with, you know, families or young people in their life, like this is just an absolute gem to take some of the ideas we've been talking about today, but, but translate them into language that a five-year-old can understand. So that's awesome. That sounds like a great drop, you know? So, I mean, I've had a great time with this conversation. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a great way for me to end at least this portion of my day. I have a couple more things before, (laughs) before the day officially ends, but I'm getting closer. And and this was a great way to, to kind of get closer. So thank you so much, April, for joining me. And the book Flux is amazing and it will be coming out in August. So there's a little bit of time left before it comes out, but I urge when folks, when it does come out to folks to really check it out and, and engage with it. It's a, it's a great read. Thank you so much, Phil. Yeah. And um, if you just want to learn more about it too, at fluxmindset.com, I created the site really to be more than just, you know, a site to buy a book. It's I'm really trying to just share that openly and it has been marvelous, absolutely marvelous to join you today. And thank you for your time, your generosity. And uh, as I always like to sign off these days, mind the flux. <laughs> Perfect way to end it. Thank you so much. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.